Hi, I'm Mike Wendy with PFF's TechCast. I recently sat down with Adam Thier and Baron Soka to discuss two new essays they have in their series on how not to reinvent the media. So, Adam and Baron, you have uh, two new papers in the series. Um, can you give me a little idea of uh, the first one on media vouchers? What's going on there? Sure, Mike. Well, in our latest installment in PFF's Wrong Way to Reinvent Media series, we discuss an idea that's all of a sudden gaining some traction in academic circles and among uh, various regulatory advocates here in Washington, the idea of Washington creating a so-called news voucher or public interest voucher to find a way to steer citizens toward hard news or serious journalism or more public interest programming. The idea is pretty straightforward. We'd somehow give consumers or citizens the right to spend $200 through a tax credit or something like that on certain types of media content. Um, Of course, the first problem with this scheme is we already have the right to spend our money however we see fit. There's no reason we have to steer that money through Washington and allow them to take a cut of it to figure out how we should be spending it uh, on media. Uh, Second of all, you just can't force people to eat their greens, so to speak, or consume broccoli journalism or the good news and entertainment out there. People are going to still use their money, even if it's in the form of a tax credit, to consume whatever they wish. And in all all likelihood, it's not going to be what a lot of these academics and policymakers want people to be consuming. Uh, Third, you know, realistically, it's unlikely this scheme, even if the money was directed towards hard news or serious journalism – It's unlikely that vouchers could really help save struggling media entities or really change the character of what people consume uh, in America in terms of media content. Um, But I think our our most serious concerns about this, which I'm going to let Barron uh, deal with, have to do with uh, the potential for some serious political meddling. Barron, there's some powerful First Amendment arguments going on, some concerns. Can you give me some idea of what those are? Sure. Well, anytime we start talking about uh, having the government limit a certain benefit to a particular qualifying class of individuals or publications or viewpoints or content, we start to have really important First Amendment questions. And and we run into what I would call here the political constitutional paradox. That is that it it may very well be here that what's politically feasible is unconstitutional and what's constitutional is politically impossible. And what we mean by that is uh, the advocates of these schemes spend a lot of time saying, well, don't, we don't have to worry about censorship or about this money being directed in, in, in ways that are prone to favoritism because the courts will stop that. And, to, and, and, and our response is that may to some extent be true. It, it would still be uh, unjust to force people to pay for content that, that they find reprehensible. Uh, uh, but not only is it unjust, if in fact that were to succeed, but it, it's very likely to produce very strong political pressure to impose uh, perhaps creative restrictions that will somehow wind their way through the courts and survive a constitutional challenge. So either way, we're very concerned about the, the First Amendment implications of all this. And and so uh, the, the concern the other side has has responded to first and foremost is this idea that uh, what we call the golden rule, he who has the gold makes the rules, that ultimately giving government control over funding means that government's going to be in charge of content. Well, advocates of these schemes come back and say, all we have to do is build a big enough firewall, and that will protect us from political meddling. And it's true that in some contexts, in, in narrow subsidies, uh, narrow funding for, for niche media products, those things have worked reasonably well, but our point is that if this were a, a really transparent, obvious, massive, across-the-board set of subsidies, 
such as through media vouchers, that pressure would really become overwhelming. And so uh, when we talk about more narrow uh, subsidies, the, the most popular proposal that the other side brings up here is always to expand postal subsidies. And we run into some of the same sorts of First Amendment problems and qualification issues there. And in a nutshell, uh, it's not that those subsidies haven't worked in the past, but that the, the history of the post office and of the American government's involvement in this sector has, in fact, been riddled with censorship. And it goes back really to, to day one. So when the other side tries to tell this story of saying, oh, well, we've had subsidies in this context and, it, and, and it's worked extremely well and it hasn't produced political meddling, they're really engaging in a bit of historical revisionism that's really important for their case rhetorically because they want us to believe that firewalls will always work. Now, Adam, this has some obvious problems, too. It's costly. Yeah, there's a real question about, you know, expanding postal subsidies, as in, can we really afford it? Uh, The Postal Service in the United States is on track to lose something like $7 billion this year alone and projected to lose something like $238 billion by 2020. Um, You know, we don't live in a world of uh, of free lunches. The fact is somebody's got to pay for subsidies, and that somebody is ratepayers or taxpayers. And we're already potentially on track to have to bail out the Postal Service. I don't think this is the time for us to be considering expanding these subsidies, or we at least need to understand that these trade-offs exist. But the Postal Service itself has acknowledged that it can hardly right now afford the cost of these subsidies or lower, uh, lower rates that certain types of media products are accorded. So I don't think it's really feasible that we could see a significant expansion of postal subsidies along those lines. Second of all, it's the same problem we have with the media voucher proposal. Even if you uh, offer greater postal subsidies as as a way to help media, it's not going to necessarily help really truly struggling media entities survive uh, the gut-wrenching changes that are that are underway right now, and and then and then third, uh, I just point out that it seems rather silly that we'd be subsidizing the distribution mechanisms and systems and technologies of the past, in particular, you know, the, the carbon footprint, if you will, of uh, you know carv- cutting down a lot more trees to produce uh, more paper and subsidizing that doesn't seem to be particularly environmentally sensible or wise. So, one would wonder why we would want to uh, encourage that sort of thing, especially in an age when we're transitioning to digital delivery of almost all media products. Now, these four papers are going to be worked into a larger paper for the FCC. Can you give me an idea of what you have on tap for the last of these papers and what's going to happen with the FCC on May 7th? Sure. Well, we have papers upcoming about uh, bailouts and welfare for journalists, uh, as well as taxes on advertising. And, and then eventually we'll be doing a paper about some of the ideas that we find uh, the, the least offensive, some of the good things that government could be doing here to, to help journalism and the free flow of information. And all those are going to be rolled into the filing that we're, we're going to be doing on May 7th in the FCC's Future of Media Proceeding. And we have also an event coming up on that on May 20th at the uh, Reagan Center. Very good stuff. I want to thank you both. This has been a presentation of the Progress and Freedom Foundation. If you'd like more information, please visit us on the web at www.pff.org.